during pre-virus times when people were still at the office, many would hit the vending machines at around 3 p.m. every day. Others might order french fries from a drive-thru or just consume an entire pint of ice cream right in the front of the freezer at midnight. Carb-heavy and sugar-intensive comfort food is built into the daily routines of many Americans, the assumption being that eating it will make you feel better. But it turns out that this assumption may not be true. Scientific studies now show there is no correlation between sugar consumption and mood. More specifically, a meta-study of 31 other studies investigated the effects of sugar on anger, alertness, depression, and fatigue. The aggregated results indicated that there was no positive effect, and this result held even as the volume of sugar consumed increased. If anything, sugar tended to make people more tired and less alert in the hour after consumption. Now, I'm not here to harp about nutrition because I'm certainly no role model when it comes to that. The point of this example is that we run into trouble when we make decisions based on an assumed relationship that doesn't actually exist. This is known as illusory correlation, and it isn't a new phenomenon. Will Rogers was an American humorist, actor, and storyteller who was popular in the 1930s. He was all over this problem and said, what gets us into trouble is not what we don't know, it's what we know for sure that just ain't so. This idea that our strongly held beliefs can get us into trouble is our subject today. We're going to discuss several notions that investors have that aren't supported by data. I'm Mark Reapy, and this is Financial Decoder, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. It's a show about financial decision-making and the cognitive and emotional biases that can cloud our judgment. Every conscious decision we make is a product of our underlying assumptions about how the world works and how we interpret the information we have available to us. Many of the biases we talk about on this show deal with misinterpreting information or systematically failing to obtain a complete set of information. But there's another problem we face when making decisions. What if our information or our assumptions are just plain wrong? We can be the poster children for rational decision-making, free of cognitive and emotional decision-making biases, but none of that helps if we're basing our decisions on incorrect data or assumptions. This leads me to a conversation Lizanne Saunders and I recently had about the correlation between the stock market and the economy. Lizanne is a senior vice president here at Schwab, and she's our chief investment strategist. In addition to that, last year she was named as one of the 100 most influential women in finance by Barron's Magazine. We started talking about the stock market and the economy, but ended up covering not only that topic, but many other relationships that matter to investors, but are more complex than you might think. So, Lizanne, the premise of this episode is that we're talking about the concept of illusory correlations. Uh, by that, I mean people think a correlation between two variables exists, and that correlation in reality either uh, isn't there at all or it's much weaker than is commonly believed. And I think a great example of this right now is the correlation or their lack thereof between the performance of the economy and the performance of the stock market. So why do you think people uh, believe that there really should be a nice tight correlation between those, those two things? 
So I, I guess I'd answer by saying there is somewhat obviously a relationship between what's going on in the economy and what's going on in the stock market. I think what often trips investors up, and it's certainly in this environment, is maybe the time differential. So the, the stock market is a leading economic indicator. It tends to move in advance of turns in the economy. It sort of is an anticipatory mechanism for what's happening in the economy. In fact, if you actually do a correlation analysis, um, and we did one all the way back to the inception of the S&P 500, which was in the late 1920s, and if you just do a simple correlation between annual changes in real GDP, which is inflation adjusted GDP, and annual real total returns for the S&P, depending on what inflation metric you use, it's somewhere between 0.09 and 0.11. Now remember, zero means there's no correlation. You'd have to get all the way up to 1.0 to have a perfect correlation, so that's extremely low. Interestingly though, if you lag the economy by a year or so, the correlation actually jumps up to about close to 0.4, still not a perfect correlation. So I think it's the understanding that the market tends to move in advance of changes in the economy. And that's why at times like this, you see the stock market booming and wondering how that can be the case in advance of similarly strong economic data. So the economy, a lot of people think that in a, in a given 12-month period, the performance of the stock market and the performance of the economy in that year is going to be tightly correlated. And what you're saying is the data shows that the stock market is tracking next year's economic performance much higher. Correct. It's more closely. It's still not a perfect correlation because there's so many other factors that drive what the market is doing, not least being things like monetary policy, what the Fed is doing, earnings growth rates, which aren't necessarily correlated to what's going on in the economy, sentiment conditions. So there are so many other factors aside from just the economy that affect the stock market, but it's also that timing difference that's important. I'm glad you mentioned those other factors because I, I think this issue of the economy and the market, it seems to be on the mind of investors much more now because that disconnect between the two seems much greater than it uh, than it used to be. And, and my sense is that all those variables you just mentioned are much more in flux now than maybe they've they've been over the past several years. They're not only in flux, but I think what makes the current environment so unique is we've never seen a full stop in the economy by virtue of a uh, you know government mandated shutdown that had the effect of course of compressing the economy and and all the data associated with an economy to a level unlike anything we have seen say for maybe the the great depression now the fact that the market rallied in advance of the pickup off those extreme lows is in keeping with what has happened historically. But what I think is still hard to get your hands around is just how depressed the level of the economic uh, data has been and how long a path it is going to be regardless of how big the sort of month over month percentage increases in the data are to get back to anything resembling uh, pre-COVID uh, normalcy. So I think it's the depth of the weakness that is unique relative to past cycles. Obviously, these are things that um, you know professional economists and professional investors think about a lot. Uh, there are, in fact, indexes uh, created, the leading economic indicators index, the the 
lagging economic uh, indicators uh, index. Um, maybe talk a little bit about uh, what constitutes leading, what constitutes lagging, and the uh, and if you could focus a little bit on the unemployment rate, because I think that's the one economic statistic that people seem to pay an awful lot of attention to. Absolutely. I think it's probably one of the more popular uh, economic statistics and probably one if you did, you know, man on the street type interviews and you, you ask just anybody walking by uh, if they understood the unemployment rate and about what it was. It's probably one of those statistics that more often than not, people have a general sense of. The problem is it's one of those lagging economic indicators. So as the labels would suggest, there's sort of a subset of leading economic indicators. Those are indicators that tend to move first in advance of overall changes in the economy. Then there's coincident economic indicators that tend to move in line with things like GDP. And then of course the lagging indicators. So before I get to the unemployment rate, we can think of labor market data broadly as also just having leading coincident and lagging components. So the most leading indicator of all those labor market indicators is initial unemployment claims. So that's the number we get every Thursday at 8.30 Eastern time in the morning. It's how many people have initially filed for unemployment insurance. That tends to lead broader changes in the economy. The payroll number that we get as one of the headline numbers in the jobs report every fourth Friday, that is a coincident indicator. And then the unemployment rate is one of those lagging indicators. Because of its popularity, and it, it's one of those indicators that really sort of gets to the, the heart of what's going on in the economy. We feel it as, as consumers, as an individuals. But the reality is it's a lagging indicator. And when you're comparing a leading indicator like the stock market to a lagging indicator like the unemployment rate, it's why the data I'm about to, to share has uh, held true uh, in the post-World War II era. So if you break the unemployment rate since 1948 into quartiles, so the lowest unemployment rate quartile, which is when it's under 4.5%, all the way to the highest quartile, where it's more than 6.8%, the best performance for the stock market, up 19%, has come when the unemployment rate is in its highest quartile. If you leave quartiles aside and just look at periods when the unemployment rate was above 8%, which clearly we are now, the annual return for the S&P historically was 25%, because the stock market moves first in anticipation of the eventual turn down in the unemployment rate. But there's no question it trips investors up. Yeah, so uh, to, to kind of summarize that, uh, maybe grossly simplify it, if you want to know where the labor market has been, look at the unemployment rate. If you want to know where it's going, look at the initial unemployment claims. Is that, does that summarize? Absolutely. And if you want to know where the labor market is, look at payrolls. <laughs> That's right. And then uh, when it comes to uh, at least the relationship between the stock market and the labor market, it literally, based on that data, you were just saying it literally is the case where it's often darkest before the before the dawn. And uh, investing when a lot of the news is bad historically, on average, has uh, has paid off. Absolutely. And it also helps to highlight uh, something that I think is misperceived by, by investors. People think, well, how could a recession start with the unemployment rate low? Or conversely, how could a recession be over with the unemployment rate high or still rising? The unemployment rate, the moves in the unemployment rate don't cause recessions. Recessions happen and then they cause an increase in the unemployment rate. And then the opposite occurs when you move out of recovery. So there's also that sort of order of things that comes into play with just economic data, leaving the stock market aside. 
Another example of this uh, disconnect is the relationship between uh, the money supply and inflation. Uh, when I was uh, in school taking, taking uh, econ and investing classes, uh, and I, you probably were taught this as well, uh, that the view was when the money supply goes way up, then inflation is sure to follow. Uh, why was that the prevailing wisdom? What, what's the sort of kernel of truth behind that? So there, there is a kernel of truth looking over the long history because traditionally rapid money supply growth tended to correspond to booming economic growth environment, which also tended to correspond to rising inflation uh, periods. The, the difference, not just in this environment, but really the last cycle as well, coming out of the, the great financial crisis, is that we, we saw the Fed uh, step in with, with massive amounts of quantitative easing following the 08 financial crisis. And of course, they've done the same thing in this environment. So they've been pumping massive liquidity into the financial system through the, because of these last uh, two crises that we've had. And then especially recently, you add what's been done on the fiscal side with what Congress has done with stimulus checks being given directly to individuals as well as enhanced unemployment insurance. That's a massive increase, record-breaking increase in the money supply. But the only way that increased money supply becomes inflationary is if it leaves the hands of consumers, leaves the financial system through the lending channels, through the borrowing channels, and picks up what's called velocity. It basically is money that's put to work in the economy. That's when you develop an inflation problem. But when you've got businesses and or consumers sort of hoarding a lot of that liquidity that they've received, you don't get that velocity, and in turn, you don't get inflation. Um, high inflation will likely only materialize if the this so-called high-powered money created by the Fed, brought into the picture by Congress, generates a sustained acceleration in economic activity that ultimately results in much higher demand relative to productive capacity. That hasn't happened now, and it didn't happen in the last cycle either. Yeah, if the money's just sitting on uh, sitting in the bank's vault, so to speak, uh, that's not going to be generating inflation. It's got to be, as you said, it's got to be out in the economy being uh, being used for you know productive purposes. Right, and and we have seen a massive surge in personal income. In fact, what's interesting is everything that's been done by the the Fed and Congress has actually added more in the pockets of many uh, individuals than they would have otherwise gotten. But the savings rate at its recent high, went up to 32%. It settled back to 23%. But although there's been some spending of that additional money that, that uh, individuals have gotten, a lot of it has been put into savings. So it's not working its way into the economy. So you mentioned the uh, great financial crisis, 2008, 2009, as the kind of the last time the, the Fed really put a lot of money into the uh, into the financial system. And I think that's when this relationship between money supply and inflation uh, started at least be, to become very apparent that it was breaking down a little bit. Right. Uh, why do you think that uh, why do you think that happened? Well, you know, in the financial crisis era, I think it happened for two reasons. So the Fed did basically reliquify the financial system. Remember, the crisis was within the financial system. It was a collapse in the global financial system. So what the Fed did was was directly uh, sort of easing the strains in the financial system. But the problem was, even though they pumped massive amounts of liquidity into the financial system, the financial system was in the process of deleveraging. 
um, largely because of massive leverage being at the heart of the crisis, not to mention regulatory changes that required banks to just hold more capital. So it was sort of forced deleveraging on the part of the financial system. And then of course, households, because they were burned by the bursting of the housing debt bubble, also went through a period of deleveraging. So all this money sloshing around in the system, but an unwillingness on the part of banks to lend because they were deleveraging and an unwillingness or lack of desire on the part of households to borrow because they were deleveraging. So basically the Fed filled up the trough, but if no one's coming to the trough to, to drink and the owner of the trough has put a lid on the trough, that liquidity doesn't get out into the economy. So the million dollar question would seem to me is, do you think this is a permanent change or is there going to be something about what we're going through right now which will uh, trigger that bout of inflation that uh, some people are worried about? So I, I do think that there is a, a risk that the trajectory for inflation looking you know years ahead could be a, a little uh, sharper on the upside than what is currently built into expectations. I think the consensus has got to the point where many, many people view inflation as dead and buried forever. And I'm, I'm always more intrigued by the story fewer are telling than I am the story everyone is telling. And I do think that there is a risk, not of hyperinflation 1970s style, but of a bit of a pickup in inflation uh, for a variety of reasons. One is tied to massive budget deficits and, the cumulative effect of running budget deficits, which is which is rising debt levels, but maybe also separate from that, is uh, this whole notion of deglobalization um, as we we move to sort of bring production back closer to home. If you're a believer as I am that globalization over the last 30 years has been one of the reasons why inflation has come down so much. It's hard to then argue that deglobalization won't cause a little bit of a pickup in inflation. So I think near term, that's more of the risk than some of these other factors like the increase in money supply. Let's move on to talk a little bit of, about the relationship between uh, the valuation of the stock market overall and short term performance. Uh, it's a question I get. I know it's a question you get whenever people look at, say, the price earnings ratio of the S&P 500 and they see that number getting into the 20s, the upper 20s, they start getting very concerned that the, the stock market is overvalued and it's going to uh, correct over the next uh, over the next six months. Um, talk to me a little bit about, first of all, you know, how is valuation measured? And then uh, again, what does is, what is the data really show about uh, the correlation uh, between uh, valuation and short-term performance? So Mark, as you know, there are myriad ways to value either the market or an individual uh, security. In fact, from a market valuation uh, perspective, I, I, I keep a running table that's got know, 12 to 15 valuation metrics of every variety, your standard PE ratio. And even there, are you looking at trailing earnings, earnings that have already gone in the books or forward earnings? If you're looking at trailing, how far back are you going? You can look at equity risk premiums relative to either treasuries or corporate, but no matter which metric you use, and even if you just hone in on your standard PE ratio, there is very little, if any, correlation between where valuation is at any point in time 
and near-term market performance, meaning say subsequent one-year performance. There's just no relationship. And I think that has to do with, it makes me think of that famous Benjamin Graham uh, line that in the short run, the market is a voting machine, but in the long run, it is a weighing machine. And I think there are so many other factors that drive short-term market performance. Valuation just doesn't happen to be one of them, even if it is a much better guide for longer-term performance. Yeah, and so why why do you think that why why do you think that is? I mean, I love that uh, uh, Ben Graham quote. Why do you think valuation starts to matter more and more as you go out two years, three years, ten years? What's driving that? So, uh, and I'll get to why valuations matter in the long term, but but in the short term, prices, whether it's of a stock or an overall uh, index like the S and P, are typically set uh, via you know reflexive forces, whether it's the information we're getting, uh, headlines on a day-to-day basis, herding in momentum, chasing feedback loops, you know, animal spirits uh, uh, kind of stuff. And that actually ties to valuation. We think of valuation as this quantifiable metric because we always know what the price is of an index or the stock. Even on a forward earnings basis, there is a there's a number typically out there. There's an estimate for a company. There's there's consensus estimates for say the S and P 500. So you think okay, we've got these two quantifiable components of the equation. It should mean something. But the reality is that valuation is as much a sentiment indicator as it is a fundamental indicator. There are times like circa 2000 where investors were willing to pay you know nosebleed valuations for for stocks that really had no prospects for earnings and other times like early 09 that investors didn't want to pay um, anything so i think it's that sentiment factor in uh the short term you know ultimately high valuations set up uh, a condition sometimes called criticality such that and this ties into how it's a sentiment indicator as they get more stretched you know even relatively small shocks to the system can trigger a change of state. So I still very much believe in their applicability to long-term market returns, but in the short term, it's really a function of market sentiment. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about earnings uh, because earnings showed up uh, quite a bit in uh, some of the different valuation metrics that you were that you were listing earlier. What's the what's the relation be- relationship between say an earnings growth rate and subsequent market performance? Yeah, I, this this always uh, surprises investors when I share these statistics because even if somebody understands what we touched on in the beginning of of your show about the relationship between the stock market and the economy, people do very directly tie earnings to stock prices. But again, you've got the leading nature of the stock market. And of course, when earnings are released for a company collectively their rear view mirror earnings and the market tends to anticipate that, which is why if you, and this is a similar analysis to what I showed with the unemployment rate. Um, if you break earnings growth into various sort of ranges. Um, now the worst performance for the stock market has come when earnings growth is worse than minus 20%. So sort of, you know, recession type Armageddon scenario, the, the average return for the market or the average annual return for the market was negative almost 14%. But interestingly, the best zone for the stock market in terms of earnings growth is when earnings were somewhere between negative 20% and plus 5%. And that tends to reflect that the stock market usually has a tough time when earnings are imploding. 
But at that turn where they start getting better, they start moving into less bad territory, that's usually the launch point for the stock market. By the way, the worst performance for the stock market at only a little more than 2% annualized return is when earnings growth is more than plus 20%. So again, it's understanding the relationship between economic and earnings data and the leading nature of the stock market. Yeah, Lizanne, uh, a lot of interesting things in that answer, but one of those you mentioned was uh, stocks are are pricing based on uh, the the expected uh, earnings. And another question we get periodically is company X will report earnings. They lost, say, a billion dollars during a quarter, and its price goes up because, frankly, the market was expecting it only to lose maybe $2 billion or $3 billion during the, during the quarter. So could you talk a little bit about um, – how investors sort of collectively should be uh, should be thinking about uh, those expectations and how those fo- how the, how they're formed and what happens when those expectations are either even are either exceeded or or disappointed. Yeah, so I think this is also a very important concept about where the expectations bar is, whether it's for economic data or an earnings release by a company or earnings more broadly, say for a sector for an index overall is the market in the short term tends to care more about better or worse than it does about good or bad. And I think that's an important concept to think about. Better or worse tends to matter more than good or bad. It's human nature to think of data, whether it's earnings or economic data, in more level-based terms, good versus bad, strong versus weak. But the market tends to key off better or worse inflection points. And that comes into play uh, with, with earnings as well, where the bar has been set and whether the company is exceeding that bar or underperforming that bar in the short term can drive a lot of the, of the market performance. Uh, thanks, Lizanne. I've got uh, one more question and then we'll, then we'll wrap up here. Uh, when we think about, I think when we think about these correlations or lack thereof, it's really an assumption that investors are making that a relationship exists, and that relationship is, isn't there or it's not as strong as they thought. Uh, but people make assumptions uh, all all the time that that influence their investing behavior. And and one statement I get is people say, particularly when during periods of economic uncertainty, they'll say. Well, I'm just going to I'm just going to stop investing. I'm going to turn into a saver, and I'll become an investor again once everything has has settled down. I think implicit in that kind of statement are a lot of strong assumptions. Uh, what do you think? Oh, definitely a lot of strong assumptions, and and often when that question is is asked or the comment is made, the terminology used is why wouldn't I just you know get out for a while and then just get back in when when things settle down and. The problem with, with that is um, how does one make that judgment? We, we know that market timing is really an impossible task. And when you're talking about making all or nothing decisions, you've got to be right at both times in order to sort of nail it. Um, and what, what's going to drive that uh, decision? Is it just sort of maximum emotional pain? I think we sometimes have to differentiate between financial risk tolerance and emotional risk tolerance. But it requires that uh, really accurate timing in both directions. And the reality is to be a successful long-term investor, you don't have to pinpoint tops and bottoms with any kind of precision. Um, investing should always be a process over time, a disciplined stay in gear process over time using things like diversification and rebalancing. It should really never be about any moment in time because that 
is what trips investors up, especially if they're dealing more with the emotional side of investing and, and not not the sort of intellectual side of investing. So uh, again, you don't have to pick tops and bottoms, I think, to be a, a successful long-term investor. Lizanne, a lot of timeless wisdom as always. Uh, thanks for stopping by. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that Will Rogers once said, what gets us into trouble is not what we don't know, it's what we know for sure that just ain't so. You may have heard this quote before because it opens the 2015 film, The Big Short. I always planned to use that quote in the introduction, but just a few days before we were going to actually record this episode, I decided to fact check that quote to make sure I got the wording right. I'm glad I did. It turns out that my assumption that Will Rogers was the originator is disputed. Other sources attribute it to Mark Twain, but still others provide evidence that he didn't originate it either and cite humorous Josh Billings or comedian Artemis Ward as the true origin. So one lesson from this episode is to make sure you fact check your podcast. More importantly, how do you avoid the trap of the illusory correlation or making unfounded assumptions? Here are some suggestions. First, recognize that the human brain tends to find causation even when it doesn't exist. This is often because we don't cast a wide enough net and consider all instances of a phenomenon. This is why the data Lazan discussed looking at correlations went back to the inception of the S&P 500. Including a larger data set often reveals that a correlation in one period doesn't show up in other periods which cast doubt as to whether the correlation is truly universal or just a fluke. Second, don't be fooled by averages. Going back to 1926, the average annual return to the S&P 500 is about 10%. However, the return in any given year is almost never 10%. Instead, there's tremendous variability year to year. The same applies to many supposed cause and effect relationships when it comes to investing. On average, many relationships appear to exist, but if you look closely at all of the individual instances when they occurred, you find that some might work only 60% of the time and others far less than that. Third, look for the alternate explanation. If you think event A causes event B, Take a moment and think about what other event could also cause event B. One example of this is the inversion of the yield curve in October 2019. At the time, many analysts pointed out that recessions often follow several months after the yield curve inverts. But this recession wasn't caused by the yield curve inverting. The recession we're in as I'm recording this was caused by efforts to contain the COVID-19 virus. The yield curve inversion had nothing to do with it. It's another example of a correlation that isn't as strong as people think, and in this one instance, is an illusion. If you want to know more about what the markets are doing and why, check out schwab.com volatility. And you can get all kinds of market insight if you follow Lizanne on Twitter at Lizanne Saunders, L-I-Z-A-N-N-S-O-N-D-E-R-S. You can follow me on Twitter at Mark Reepe, M-A-R-K-R-I-E-P-E. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to the final episode of Season 5. Season 6 will start up later this year, and we just might throw in a bonus episode between now and then. If this is the first episode that you've listened to, there are 30 more available for downloading. If you've enjoyed any of the episodes, 
please consider leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app. Those reviews really do help others discover the show. For important disclosures, see the show notes and schwab.com slash financial decoder.